Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another episode of the Showtime with Roman podcast, episode 31. And today, uh, we have a lot to talk about. Maybe not a lot per se, just a few news topics by comparison to a couple weeks ago with David. We've got some movies to review and a pretty cool discussion topic I've been wanting to do for a long time, but just waiting for the right person. And that person is... Nolan Dean, the author of Moonflower. Nolan, how's it going? Oh, it is going as well as it can go over in bloody Scotland, mate. It's freezing. (laughs) I'm stuck in my room. But I'm always happy to be talking video essays, my book. And um, I swear, we've been trying to work together for like ages now. So I'm glad it's finally happening. Yeah, it's. I know that uh, we originally kind of talked about a potential How to Train Your Dragon uh, video essay collaboration because we're both big fans of that, which we're, of course, going to get into later because this week the release of How to Train Your Dragon 3, The Hidden World, is out, and we both saw that uh, what seems like months ago, but it was only like a couple weeks ago. Um, but your book, uh, Moonflower, you've been working on that uh, for months now. Uh, any updates on a potential you know, release? What's the synopsis for listeners? Um, well, uh, Moonflower's been kind of like my book baby for around, say, two years now. I came up with the idea, I think, back when I first joined the movie talk group. And for the uninitiated, it's it's a middle grade story about a little girl named Millie Robertson, who's a big geek and kind of an introvert, but kind of like us, she escapes into fiction for comfort because she just can't find happiness in her real life, you know, bullied kid, that sort of thing. And so uh, one day she's wandering around in a park. She finds two people who come from another world who are searching for something and kind of desperately wants to put herself on that adventure. And she sees that one of them can bring drawings to life. So she's like, holy shit, I know someone who could help you. And they bring her favorite character, who's called Moonflower Jones, to life. Uh, That name is kind of like, uh, it's sort of a riff on like crazy storybook hero names it's kind of making fun of it but uh, the thing where i wanted to get interesting with it was to use this as like an origin story for a villain so i was asking myself like what would happen if a fictional character discovered that they were fictional and they weren't really happy about it because i mean you think about it like uh, say if harry potter got a chance to meet jk rowling i feel like his first questions would be like okay why did you kill all my friends and family uh, why did you do all this to me? And so when Moonflower hears that, she kind of snaps. And then you have this adventure where Millie kind of has to go up against someone that she looked up to. And it's it's kind of a sad thing with that. But I wanted to make it a really fun 80s adventure as well. But the the idea for the villain just sort of blossomed everything. And it's uh, it's been something that I've been really passionate about for ages. It's with an agent in New York right now. I'm just waiting to see if i'm gonna be an author or not from it but you know fingers crossed yeah i mean listen dude uh you've been you know like you said two years and i've just you know obviously been keeping tabs because it's so cool to know someone that's written a book because for a long time growing up i I mean i read a lot Uh, i don't know if you know what accelerated reader points are but every time you know you would take a, a test on a book for like library class or whatever you would have to take a test on it and if however many you got right out of let's say 20 questions then you would get points back so we had like i think eight rewards or seven rewards it was like got up to like honors reader two i got so many points that they had to create new awards because i was reading so much and i was testing so well and it's just i wanted to you know write for a long time when i was younger or you know write in general and that's kind of been my thing for a long time obviously i wanted to be a sports writer for a while and then man of steel came out and my life completely changed of course so (laughs) um but yeah you know it sounds amazing i really honestly can't wait to read it i hope it gets you know published and everything like that and just becomes this like big hit that would be really cool because it sounds so interesting and so creative um so i really hope that goes well for you man i really do i hope so i mean i was actually kind of surprised that no other author had tried writing a villain that way like, I have seen yeah. stories where characters come to life, like in Goosebumps or Inkheart or something like that, but they've never really asked that question of, uh, you know, what's the psychology behind finding out if you're fictional? And I and I thought I could approach that with real heart and sort of uh, a darkness as well. It, it's kind of like Neil Gaiman in that aspect, if you've ever read any yeah. of his stuff. I haven't, unfortunately, but I know what you're talking about. Uh, Caroline in the Graveyard book, two of the best books I've ever read. <laughs> 
Yeah, I need to read more, man. I, I miss it. I love it. Uh, but I just that visual learner aspect of me just loves movies just a bit more. Uh, so that's what I go to now. But anyways, moving on uh, to news. Nothing, uh, nothing too major here per se. But we've got a big rumor swirling on. And then of oh, course, yay. you know more the movies. Rumors. Yes, we know the movie space loves their rumors, and this is a big one. So it's being reported that Army Hammer, the star of The Man from Uncle, Social Network, is reportedly cast as the next Batman, Bruce Wayne, and Matt Reeves's upcoming. The Batman film. Nolan, what are your thoughts on Army Hammer possibly being the next Batman? I mean, I really like Army Hammer. I think he's probably one of the more underrated uh, actors, but here's the thing. I, I don't hate the idea of him as Batman. I just think it's kind of a predictable choice, and I would honestly rather see Army Hammer's talent be put towards maybe like a Batman villain or something, because you look at him and he's got this kind of like handsome exterior, but there's sort of a darkness behind his eyes. And you see that a lot where he plays arrogant characters like in Social Network, uh, Man from Uncle. And I hear he does that in uh, Sorry to Bother You as well, but I haven't managed to watch that yet. And if they're going for a sort of film noir route with this, I feel he'd be a perfect choice to play Hush, which is kind of like Bruce Wayne if he was evil. And... Um, I just I think his talents would probably work more towards him being a villain, but I don't think he's a bad choice for Batman at all. It's just kind of a predictable one. Yeah, I uh, it, I can't really disagree. Um, I said for a while, well, not for a while, but ever since they uh, kind of came out with these big rumors, you know, with the internet space, a lot of people wanted, uh, I believe, Richard Madden from Game of Thrones. A lot of people wanted Army Hammer. A lot of people wanted Robert Pattinson. And I, and I was kind of on the Robert Pattinson train. Same. Although he's not quite as built like a Batman, per se. Uh, he's a little more lanky. I still think he could obviously get into that physicality, and I find him to be one of the most inspiring performers working right now. Um, so I still would love to see that. I don't think it's going to happen simply because Army Hammer is such a really good uh, relationship with Warner Brothers, uh, and he's had relationship with them for a while. He's supposed to be Batman in George Miller's Justice League Dark film. He was supposed to... He's always been you know, rumored to be either a Green Lantern in the DC Cinematic Universe. So... He's got a good relationship. He's got the talent, but it is a predictable and kind of uninspiring choice, uh, just purely in the sense that there are options out there that maybe you could toy with a little more uh, interesting things um, writing-wise uh, in, in the sense that you don't have a guy that's quite as big as an Army Hammer. Um, and let's be honest, though, if, he, if it is Army Hammer, if this is true, then I think it's hard not to get excited because I can just envision him in that role so well, even if it's not the most inspiring one. Yeah, uh, I'd so, agree with that, but to be honest, I'm casting doesn't really matter as much to me as it used to, probably because I'm looking at movies through the idea of a writer. I want to know like who's directing it, what vision they're bringing to it, and yeah. the performance kind of has to, it sort of levels that, so I'm more interested in seeing what they're doing with this Batman movie, story-wise, rather than who's playing the characters, because casting choices can surprise you all the time. Oh, of course. Yeah, a couple weeks ago with David, you know, we were talking about the news that Ben Affleck was out as Batman, which he just officially confirmed himself hold, on. Like, hold John on, John Campia is probably going to get uh, ratty on your podcast. <laughs> yeah, uh, credit to uh, John Campia, you know, two years ago, even though he said he wasn't a scooper, uh, not to take it like a scoop, uh, whatever. That whole mess is just nutty, to say the least. Uh, He's but, nutty, to um, say the least. Yes, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So uh, I just hope they kind of do something uh, political thriller-wise. Uh, cur currently in this climate, I think that would be relevant and really interesting. Uh, something like Clayface or the Riddler. They said they're going to lean more into the detective stuff. We've seen the physical Batman. We've seen the more psychological Batman. But now we need some more of that uh, detective-esque Batman. And I think that we're going to get a nice blend of that because I think Matt Reeves is just a fantastic director. Um, and so if Army Hammer is his choice to be Batman, I have to put all my trust into him. Yeah. Um, Did you hear the um, the idea they had for Clayface in this movie? Because I read a description of it and it sounded really cool. I did not. So their idea was uh, it's they sort of treat it like a whodunit, film noir, Maltese Falcon kind of thing. And there's been like murders Ooh, around Gotham. But then they have Clayface just in it as a shapeshifter and they fan casted uh, Andy Serkis. Which I thought, like, just the idea of that sounds really cool. Wow, that sounds amazing. I want that movie yesterday. Like, it sounds, that sounds amazing. Like, because, one, Andy Serkis is good at mocap. He's got a good relationship with Reeves. Ah, man, I would love that. I would oh. really love that. 
I would also, I mean, I, I need to see a great Riddler on screen because I don't think I've have had one yet. Oh, yeah. Uh, my, my idea of what I see the Riddler as is very different than Jim Carrey and tights pretending to be the Joker. But uh, I feel like uh, with the uh, how Reeves is pitching this Batman movie, all of it's leading towards having Hush as the villain for me, which I interesting. honestly I would welcome because we've seen so many Batman villains on screen now. Let's see some of the ones that haven't even been on like television or anything yet. Just I say give Hush this and make him a like the next great DC villain. Yeah, I wouldn't mind that. Hush is a great story, and I would love to see like uh, a Matt Damon in that role. I think that would be pretty interesting, even though he's a little bit older. Um, then our well, Matt, Matt Damon was going to be Mysterio, I think, before Gyllenhaal was cast. Oh my goodness. So he, he's in that kind of, I mean, he's looking for his comic book role, I guess. Interesting. I would love to see that. So moving on uh, to a little bit of a smaller studio, another pot. It's more of not a rumor per se, but they've definitely talked about considering it. Blumhouse is considering rebooting Scream and Hellraiser. I'm going to kick things off here. Um, I haven't seen any of the Hellraisers, so I can't really attribute any sort of conversation to that. But I've seen most of the Screams. I think I haven't seen Scream 2. I've seen the rest. Um, and, you know, Blumhouse, they did Halloween last year, right? The Halloween 2018. Yeah. Okay. They did. So I wasn't a big fan of that. And I think that with Happy Death Day to you kind of being like their smaller, like franchise-esque type of film that they can do a lot of stuff with, you know, that's pretty inspiring. I haven't seen the films, but a lot of people seem to love it. A lot of people seem to kind of dislike it. But for me... I don't really see a point in rebooting Scream or, or remaking it in some sort of way because I just don't really trust them to just deliver something entirely new. I posted this on my Facebook and said, oh my goodness, are they just going to like recreate shots that we already know and love from previous films and just kind of rekindle or re you know fix the plot or something? It just... I don't know if I trust them to really dive into uh, just something new and interesting because Scream is sort of meta in the sense that you know it kind of you know subverts you know expectations of the genre and kind of plays you know uh, by its own rules while creating it you know its own or creating some new rules and it's always been kind of interesting and Wes Craven rest in peace brought just amazing vision to that and I think that in without that Craven sensibility I don't know if they're going to be able to pull it off if they choose to do it because I think it would be a really interesting type of film that we could have right now, but why don't you just create something new um, instead of using just the same old, same old. So what are your thoughts on uh, Scream and Hellraiser possibly being rebooted through Blumhouse? Scream is my favorite horror movie of all time. And uh, the thing that, about that series that makes it work is it's actually... Um, I got a bit of slack for this a few years ago, but I said Ghostface was technically the most scary horror killer. Because I feel like Ghostface is one of those characters who, he's scary not because he has powers or because he's unstoppable or anything. It could literally be a guy that's living on your street, and I find that really terrifying. So if they manage to dig into that angle a bit more, like the sort of, you don't really know who your neighbors are kind of thing, or who to trust, um, I could see it working, but once again, I don't really see the need for it, because... I mean, Scream's been rebooted already. I mean, they had an MTV show a couple of years ago that was decent. It yeah. Captured the vibe of Scream pretty well, but not on the same level Craven would. The only way I would be sold on this happening would be if they got someone with real vision to direct it and if they still had Kevin Williamson on as writer. Because, I mean, a lot of people talk about Wes Craven's directing and why that works for Scream, but I feel a lot of it does rely on Kevin Williamson's writing and how he specifically saw the horror genre at that time. But the thing was, Scream is... It's not like it's a dated movie anymore. It's still really rewatchable. Very it still holds up perfectly. Yeah. In, in fact, I'd say the all four of them are really rewatchable. Like, have that as a little fun little horror Six hours, and, yeah. They're not very long either. And the thing is, I don't really sense a demand for Scream. I mean, what else can you do to reinvent that? Now, if Blumhouse wanted to take say another horror franchise that's maybe been dead for a while, give it a new spin, like, I don't know, maybe a Nightmare on Elm Street or something like that, I'd be interested in hearing what they do there. But for Scream, it's like, okay, I'll probably be interested in it just because I love that franchise so much, but yeah. I have to see what they're doing with it first. With Hellraiser, I've only seen the first one, mm -hmm. and it's a, it's a really cool concept, but 
I feel like today, I feel like that actually would work more for today's horror audience because they love the more supernatural kind of things like with the conjuring and stuff like that. And the thing is, uh, what, like how I view Scream as Kevin Williamson's baby, I mean, Hellraiser is Clive ba- Barker's baby. Yeah. That guy knew how to tell horror in such a great way. If you ever get a chance, read up what he wanted to do with The Mummy. Mm. Like, uh, his idea for The Mummy was so insane and so wild, and I'm really sad that we never got that, and instead we got Mission Impossible, The Mummy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I'm, I'm a big Universal Monsters fan, and that kind of, that, that means a lot to me, so... I could see Hellraiser potentially getting a new spin. I mean, if you did it maybe sort of Suspiria-esque with, like, the colors mm-hmm. and the crazy yeah. uh, Cenobite Satanist culture thing. I don't know. Hellraiser is really hard to explain, especially since I've only seen it once. But, I mean, if you're going to bring back an iconic horror villain, I mean, it'll be better than the shitty straight-to-DVD sequels they've been doing for Hellraiser. Yeah, and kind of just thinking about it as you were talking, you know, maybe... Blumhouse put out this news saying that they're considering Scream or Hellraiser just to see which people wanted more. And and that could be the case. You know, maybe they said, we're considering these two options. Let's see how our audience responds. Because Blumhouse personally is very in tune with social media and very in tune with what uh, audience members kind of want. And I think that they do a really good job. I think it was time for a Halloween reboot. Did I like the film? No. But I thought it was time, and a lot of people did enjoy the film and kind of reintroduced audiences to a new, uh, uh, to Halloween that may not have seen it before. And I think that with Scream, like you said, it's just so recent. I mean, it, what's with these studios rebooting films that kind of started within the last 20 years? If a movie has been made or a franchise has been started within my lifetime and you're already rebooting it, that's a little weird to me. <laughs> so I'm only 22 years old. So yeah, it's weird. I, I did see an idea actually. Um, someone had for a Scream Five a while ago. As um, it, it was insane and probably would never happen, but I would at least be somewhat interested to see where they go with it. They thought the idea would be have Maureen Prescott come back and make her ghost face and be sick sick of having her name dragged through the mud mm. and have that be like a final surprise twist, just like That'd be her versus cool. Sydney. Yeah, that'd be kind of cool. I kind of it, dig it that. does sound kind of fan fictiony. Yeah, but speaking of that, there's actually loads of Scream inspired fan films on YouTube that are they honestly they take the idea and put it in interesting ways. Like someone on your post commented, uh, "What if it was like a deranged fan who wanted a Scream Five? I saw a fan film with that exact premise. Oh wow, interesting. Yeah, maybe that's where they go because you know with this sort of toxicity that you know, invades a lot of these franchises, uh, no name drop specifically, but, um, that would be kind of like Paramedics. Yeah. 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 That guy. Um, you know, it just would be quite interesting, uh, to see something like that, sort of just a a spin on that, uh, toxicity, but, um, hopefully we don't start getting too much of that because Wreck-It Ralph 2 kind of did that. Um, and so I hope it, I never saw Wreck-It Ralph 2. So, but it's quite good and I think you would quite enjoy it. Uh, but hopefully all these movies don't start saying, oh, look at all this bad toxicity, because then it would just kind of feel like oversaturation on that. So moving on, um, you know, it's fun to talk about news, but nothing is better than reviewing movies, whether verbally, whether written on a page, whether written through Google Docs, and it doesn't open sometimes, basically my laptop. Uh, so two movies we're reviewing, two movies that we both quite enjoyed, I would say. First one, How to Train Your Dragon 3, The Hidden World, releases this weekend, directed by Dean DeBlois? 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 Do you know how to... I think it's DeBlois. Okay, so um, Dean directed that, and then uh, you've got Jay Berusha Barla. My my mouth is just not working the way that it should right now. Jay Berusha starring in that as uh, Hiccup uh, once again and capping off this trilogy. Nolan, I'm going to toss it to you first. What are your thoughts on How to Train Your Dragon 3, The Hidden World? Well, uh, I've How to Train Your Dragon is probably my favorite animated franchise because like, growing up, I didn't see a lot of really good male role models in animated movies. They were usually like either the handsome anti-hero or the Prince Charming, and like yeah. that's fine, but I never really related to any of them. Hiccup was the first time that I related to a male protagonist in an animated movie. And he's not. I I love what I love about this character so much is that he's not this big hulking jock guy. He's really just a compassionate, caring guy who loves animals and yeah. is uses his smarts instead of brawn. And 
with how to train your dragon three um i mean after the various delays we had uh i hoped that they would deliver a great final product and for my money they did i was legit tearing up at the end of this movie so much and just seeing how far it's come like i i was the exact same age as hiccup when the first how to train your dragon opened and then i was leaving high school as the second one came up and that that movie kind of deals with that growing into adulthood seeing this one as a 22 year old and having to say goodbye to stuff that was a part of your childhood i mean this series has literally hit every moment in my life perfectly for me and done it in such a great fashion and uh, even the villain in this movie i thought was kind of cool and that's but that's probably more because f murray abraham voiced him and i'm a big amadeus fan (laughs) yeah it's it's a film that uh really just kind of was like this is this is just how animation uh you know tapping into its full potential um, just in the sense of character and sense of scope, it's a simple story. It's the weakest of the three, but it hits every beat. Like you said, cause we're the same age and all of those movies came out at the perfect time. Um, and I think that's just a huge part in how we respond to movies and why something like, even though I love toy story one, two, and three, you know, those movies came out at a time when I was younger. So although I can't really particularly relate to everything in toy story three, the saddest part of that movie when it came out was that, oh, these toys are dying. But now when I watch it, it's the part that Andy's leaving and moving on and he's not staying with his mom anymore and it's sad. And, and, you know, kind of like with this one, the childhood thing kind of goes away. But back to How to Train Your Dragon, I just was just really just surprised by just how intimate it felt, how big in scale it still felt, and just sort of just the animation alone. Just everything is so crisp and detailed and just beautiful. And... uh it's just amazing to me that a lot of people, it makes money and it makes good money. But in terms of like animated trilogies, you know, it has, it's like major fans, but even like my siblings, they're not interested in seeing it. Cause it's not like a Pixar movie. And it makes me sad because to me, it's the three most consistently strong animated films I've seen. And I love the toy story films, but toy story two is a little weak to me. And I know that's a lot of people's favorites, but yeah, it's a great film. I loved it from beginning to end. Um, I wish I was, not as tired when I saw it because I had like another screening that day and I had a lot of driving to do. So I'd love to see it again. And I probably will this weekend. Uh, but it was a great film that just really kind of knocked my socks off. And of course the ending is uh, definitely gets those tears. Definitely yanks those out. I mean, when that, when that music kicked in, it was like kind of a whimsical version of the original theme. Yeah. I, I was li- literally tears were just coming down my face. Yeah. It's, it's one of the most amazing and exquisite scores I've ever heard. And, uh, I just, the visuals alone, like with, when Roger Deakins is your consultant, I mean, come on, you're going to, you're going to get something pretty amazing. And, uh, that just goes back to me talking about one of my big arguments is that, uh, animated films have cinematographers, period. They still have to frame, they still have to block, they still have to bring everything together and, uh, visually. And it just honestly was a great film. I gave it like a four and a half out of five. Did you get, probably give it the same? Uh, man, I I don't really rate things, but uh, if I did, then yeah, it's on the pretty high scale. It's probably my, it's my well, this is kind of premature, but it's my favorite movie I've seen this year. Yeah, I mean, there hasn't been a lot out this year, but it's definitely up there for me. Uh, just I think it's like my second right now, right behind High Flying Bird. Is there anything in the film that kind of irked you? Anything you thought they could have did better? Um, n- not that I can really think of uh, per se. I mean. I, I felt the animation in this one, while it's still good, it it wasn't to me as visually striking as the second one yeah. was, because like, I keep going back to that first flying scene with Hiccup and Toothless in the second one, yeah. and it literally feels like a live-action movie. Yeah, chills every like, time. The animation's that good. Yeah. Uh, whereas this one, it felt kind of... Um, it, it's not it's not bad, but it's like... it felt Someone made, made a comment that it felt more like the Netflix show for How to Train Your Dragon. Oh, that's kind of yeah. Wise I, I kind of the... yeah. I kind of see that. Interesting. Um, but um, for me, since I look at things from a writer perspective, the thematic content was really what lifted this for me. Because mm-hmm. are we allowed to mention a slight spoiler here? Or yeah, sure. I mean, it's I, I, actually a lot of people I know have already see, already seen it because it, they had a lot of early screenings. So go ahead. Well, um, okay. Spo- spoiler warning: If you haven't seen mm-hmm. it, um. I loved, essentially every How to Train Your Dragon movie is built around a central theme, a different one. And I mentioned this in my upcoming uh, video about it. 
I feel like the first one's kind of like an E.T., discovering who you are kind of thing. Second one, I feel, is about control. This one's about letting go, and I found it really inspiring and moving that everything was designed around that theme, even to the fact that Hiccup literally beats the bad guy by literally letting go of something. Yeah. And so that that kind of stuff really gets to my writer brain. Yeah, just makes it's, me happy. It's really creative, um, and it's an amazing film. I hope all of you check it out. Uh, this weekend and uh, spend your money on it. I think one, I had like a weird experience. Again, I was kind of tired from being out all day and driving all over the place, but the screen I was on, oh my God. So there was, there was the biggest theater, which I didn't think I was going to get originally because it said theater eight, which is one of the smaller ones. So I get to the theater and it's of course the biggest auditorium, but just to the right of the middle of the screen, there was the screen was like dirty or something because there was like, it was like Brown, like, and it wasn't like ruining like the color in the film, but it was like, definitely there was something on the screen. And so there's a lot of sequences like amongst clouds and stuff like that, or there's lots of bright colors because it's an animated film. It was so distracting that sometimes like oh. it, it was brutal. So I can't wait to see it again when maybe I'm a little more awake or like uh, I definitely have a better screen because it really made me mad because I was like obviously trying to be immersed in this film. And I was like, is no one else seeing this? Like, can we like pause the film? I would gladly pause the film to get rid of this dark spot or someone to come in with like a Windex and some paper towels or something, please. Uh, I relate to that because uh, I get mad when I see like fingerprints on my TV at oh. home and there's like one specific scene where it's like the only thing you'll see is the fucking face. Yeah, I know. Like, I always keep a couple paper towels lying around next to my TV just in case I see one. And I'm like, how did that get there? I don't even touch my TV. So, moving on. Someone's coming and touching your TV. That, that would like, be that would be big annoying. Very annoying. <laughs> um, so, moving on to the next film. The biggest surprise, um, maybe of the last couple years, Alita Battle Angel. I'm going to go ahead and kick this one off. Came out last week. This might be uh, 20th Century Fox's uh, last big film before uh, Disney uh, swallows them whole. Uh, honestly, uh, a couple months ago, I tweeted out. Uh, just uh, I retweeted like a, a preview or something for the film, and I said, just don't even let this film come out. It looks like crap. I don't even want to see it. So as the month started going along, I was like, wow, I'm kind of getting excited. I'm hearing some decent things. I'm hearing some good buzz. So then the movie finally comes out, and I am completely enamored and blown away. I didn't see it in IMAX 3D, but um, it's got some issues. Uh, the writing, in terms of the romance, in terms of the story, could have been a little better. It's a little dense, but purely in the sense of what it was trying to accomplish and trying to do, I think it did everything extremely well. First off, the action is beautifully choreographed. It's concise. It's clear. The geography is perfect you know where everyone is at this time when it cuts away the editing is great um robert rodriguez the director james cameron's getting a lot of credit because he's the james cameron uh but he only produced and wrote robert rodriguez visualized a beautiful world and mainly focused on telling an incredible journey from beginning to end with alita uh the movie does a really good job of taking this fallen you know, from Grace uh, Angel, per se, and sort of just rediscovering, you know, her life. We see her rebirth. We see her growth into adolescence. We hear, see her growth into a teenager, a young adult, and then a full-fledged adult. And I think that it's so inspiring and so well-told, and the visual effects partnered along with that just created one of the most amazing experiences I've had in a theater in a long time. Um, for me, a blockbuster is always defined by the budget that it has, not by how much it makes in return. And this, to me, is one of the most inspiring blockbusters I've seen in a long, long time. And it's not going to make its money back, I don't think, unless it does gangbusters in China and Japan, which I think it will. Um, and it's just a movie that honestly kind of blew me away from beginning to end. And I really, really cannot wait to see it a second time because so many think pieces and so many articles have come out about this thing in the last week that have been really inspiring and just rekindled sort of my love for blockbuster cinema that I haven't had since maybe The Last Jedi. And that was kind of ruined pretty quick by the fan base there. But <laughs> oh, yeah. um, what are your thoughts on Alita Battle Angel? Um. Well, I was a little bit hesitant towards it as well, because a lot of the stuff I was hearing about it was kind of things that I hate when they're trying to do movies like this, and that they focus more on uh, trying to set up sequels than telling a standalone story. But this is one of those times where I felt like, w were we watching a different movie? <laughs> yeah. But um, 
I've been thinking about this for a while, and it's not perfect, but I did really have a good time with it. But here's the thing for me on it is I related more to the Alita part of this, more so than the Battle Angel part, and I'll explain that in a bit. Like, I I was kind of expecting Alita to be another kind of bland, tough hero, and I was so surprised to see that she has this kind of innocence and charm to her. Mm-hmm. And, like, I was immediately on board with the character journey, no matter where the movie was going to go, so I just kind of let it take me for a ride. Like, I can reiterate what you said, the action in this is incredible. That's edited really slickly. Uh, there was, there's a little bit of, like, maybe future movie baiting, but it doesn't, like, compromise the experience at yeah. all for me. Um, probably one of the biggest surprises I had this year as well. N- not perfect, but, like, if someone wanted to go watch this with me again, or um, if I saw it on Blu-ray, I'd probably pick it up again. It's pretty good. Like, give this one a chance, guys. It's not the movie you think it is. Yeah, and I told people this when I posted in a couple pages. I was like, even if you're sure you're going to hate it or you already decided that you hate it, at least give it its money. I think that it deserves, you know, a, another one. And I obviously the last 10 minutes is very obnoxious sequel baiting. But at the same time, just that whole experience overall to me was just really satisfying. I really felt like I came away with a new experience and kind of a new perspective on cinema. There was a great article I read last night about how someone sort of perceived Alita's, you know, born into this one body that's not actually hers. And, you know, she kind of figures out her identity uh, as she goes along and how that is kind of a representation for uh transgender community or LGBT community. And I was like, I didn't see that because obviously I like I'm, I'm a straight white male. I wouldn't have picked up on something like that because I'm not familiar with feeling like that. And reading so- that's interesting to me. Yeah, and I and I read and I read that article and I was like, that is amazing perspective. And I think that this movie does a great job with just bringing together so many cool things regarding like obviously it's a little unsubtle, maybe like the social class, the prestigious, luxurious sky thing, and then the bottom lower class people and fighting for themselves and stuff to fight to get to this better place. It. it it's not the most subtle. It's not the most well-written. I, I will agree that the script could use some work, particularly a romance that is just one for the worst record books. Um, but overall, I just Alita herself, the titular character, they do such a good job there that it almost makes me forget some of the other problems. That And doesn't make them as overwhelming because she is so strong. Um, and it's just a movie that I loved. So I gave this like a four out of five. I thought it was great. Maybe some emotional detachment with some of the more dramatic stuff, but overall I was surprised one and two, it's visual effects are amazing along with some great action. And one of the, my favorite protagonists in recent memory, any other thoughts on Alita? Uh, Alita. She reminded me also one of, of one of my all time favorite protagonists. Uh, I don't know if you've seen Edward Scissorhands as a kid. I like saw it, but I didn't see it. If that makes sense. You know, like, sometimes you see a movie and you're like, I kind of remember that, but I really don't. It's like one of those. I'd highly recommend revisiting that now because I I only discovered that for the first time last year and I've watched it, like, 12 times since. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) It's kind of of the same sort of thing. Like, this sort of innocent person comes into this corrupt world and you see their journey through it. I saw a lot of that with Alita and I do kind of wish the movie focused a bit more on that Mm -hmm. than the whole... um, secret government thing yeah, wanting to destroy her wonky, making yeah. a weapon because like i've i've seen that all before and specifically uh, it, like um in edward scissorhands that's a very small contained story about this a similar kind of character and it works i think it might have been a better approach to go that sort of route with alita because they they had set up like uh, a teen sort of antagonist for alita in the same way edward scissorhands has anthony michael hall as the villain yeah and i thought that might have been a that that would have been how I wrote it, but you know I can't just review something by saying, "Oh, here's how I would have wrote it differently," because yeah. I hate it when reviewers do it's that. Worse. But for what they were trying to go for, and for how ambitious it was, I'd say they did a pretty solid job. I would see a second one, mostly because of uh, a certain actor that they reveal at the end. But <laughs> did I? I thought that was James Cameron. I, I well, like did, did you fi- did you find out who it was? After? Oh yeah, well of course. Well no, I thought it was James Cameron before the goggles came off. So like it, to me, like it kind of looked like him, and then the goggles came off, and of course I know who it is. Like, and it's to me one of a really cool casting choice that I never could have predicted in a million years. So well, I never would have predicted him to be in a movie like that. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm really excited to. 
hopefully, hopefully China and Japan show up. I know a bunch of people that are seeing this thing a second time. I might try and go this weekend with my girlfriend because uh, she wants to see it, and I really want to see it again. Um, so hopefully we'll see. Um, I don't think Disney would go through with the sequel because, again, this is probably Fox's last movie under their umbrella, um, which to me they go out on a pretty high note um, and kind of represent – you know, sort of what their studio has become the last couple of years. It pleases a lot of people, but sometimes it kind of doesn't for some. So yeah, uh, I don't want to see Alita return in like Wreck It Ralph three or some shit. Oh like that. man, that would be heartbreaking. That would be really heartbreaking. So, or even if they don't want to do another big uh, movie like this, I mean, they could put it on Netflix or something. Like, yes, yeah. even that has really ambitious content on it and i could see it gaining more of an audience yeah i'm just amazed that i saw a movie made for 200 million dollars that actually looked like it was made for 200 million dollars because i feel and i said i know exactly what you yeah mean. and i and i said this in my review i was like maybe it's because we've become so ingrained with seeing 200 million dollar movies you know similarly but this felt like i was watching a movie where every dollar was used to its fullest capability in every department does it have the biggest name actors sure you've got christoph waltz you've got a big surprise reveal at the end but other than that you've got a pretty small cast you've got you know great talent behind the camera producing writing and you know it just was really inspiring it just made me believe blockbuster cinema could be great again i don't like saying that because of who it's attached to but yeah Rosa Salazar also I hope she gets more work yeah like I really bought into her sort of innocence and charm and I I relate more to those characters than like the tough I have to do this to save the world kind of characters maybe that's just because of who I am but uh, no I I, I, I would definitely recommend this one Uh, give it a shot if you haven't yeah same boat so moving on to the last subject of the day, a subject, oh my goodness, I've been dying to talk about finding the right person, like I said at the top of the show, and I have that person. So Nolan, you and I, mainly you, because you you were a huge inspiration for me pursuing video essays. Uh, well, that means a yeah, lot to me, dude. I mean, you make great video essays. Like really, I mean, just the fact that you take stories and you kind of talk about the lessons that you can take from it, for me, I think that perfectly embodies what a video essay should be doing. It's informative in the sense that, not in the sense that where it's all about technical specs and all that stuff, it's informative in the sense that it informs us about your perspective on something or something that we can take away from a movie together. And I think that's really great. And that's something that I strive to do. Sometimes I don't think I convey that properly, sometimes I get a little too ambitious, but generally I think you embody a lot of what video essays should be. But at the same time, I don't think there are rules or guidelines on what a video essay should or shouldn't be in certain cases. Uh, For example, if someone comes out with a video essay and says, this movie sucks, here's why, here's why it's bad, and they just talk about, oh, it's just a bad movie, I don't know why anyone likes it. It, To me, that's unfair criticism, and and you're just looking for clickbait headlines to get the views, right? And a lot of the video essays I follow don't really do that, so that's why you know I don't really have too much perspective on that, because when I do see them come up in my feed, I might click on them in, in a second just to be like, oh my god, what are they talking about? But other than that, you know, you've got Patrick Willems, High Top Films, Movies with Mikey, Lindsay Ellis. You've got all of these people who are just so talented and talking about how a film touched them or what you can take away from it. And at the same time, you've got a different type of video essayist in Patrick Willems, who, again, he's informative and he instills so much perspective on something. And he does these big, epic pieces like Michael Bay, his Michael Bay duology is to me some of the best 40 minutes i've ever spent in my life just learning about a director who's been slammed over and over and over again but it was so informative that i feel like i learned so much more about michael bay and how to appreciate his childish nature and i think that is a sign of a great video essayist um so to for you what are some good examples of video essays bad examples what do you feel like the goal is should there be a definitive way to do video essays? Um, what are your thoughts on video essays? The answer for me is no, there's no definitive way to do a video essay. And I, I can prove that with my own channel because like, even though like, well, flattery, you said uh, my video essays are really good. My video essays are so inconsistent with how they're produced and like how I approach them. Yeah. But that's kind of because I go for, okay, if I'm talking about this particular subject, if I'm talking about this particular movie, 
I should package the video around that and sort of uh, make it an experience in and of itself. Uh, that's something um, I think Nerdwriter brought up with uh, opening titles, like how they're packaged to sort of fit their films, and that's usually where the best ones come from. So I try to do that with my videos too. Like, for example, uh, when I did the Edward Scissorhands one last year, it was I had like a snow falling background, tried to make it feel very wintry, very warm, like how that movie is. But uh, the the thing that I've I've noticed more about the video essay community that I really don't like is the sort of this movie's a meme. We all know it's a meme. Let's just make fun of it, and it's kind of like beating a dead horse yeah. at that point. And it just feels if you, if I go away from a video essay, I want to think what have I learned from this? How can I use this to sort of improve my own craft? I don't want to walk away th- go, thinking, wow, that guy really hated that movie. <laughs> it was like I, I I don't I don't care about that kind of stuff yeah. like. And videos that kind of feed into that don't really help with the whole toxic nature of how film fandom can get. And the, the really, for anyone who's starting out with the video essays, for the love of God, try and insert like a bit of a unique voice into your stories. Because I don't want to come and see, like, I'll take, for example, a movie that's been covered a million times by, like, I think every video essayist. Take something like Blade Runner, right? Yeah. And there's a lot of, like, theories around Blade Runner that people kind of repeat, and I hate seeing videos that kind of repeat the same topic. If you are going to do that and take sort of a, a similar stance, try and deliver it in a different way that's unique to your voice, like your perspective, yeah. that kind of thing. Um, I got that a lot when I did uh, my Shining video, which um, I would probably say is my best edited because I didn't edit it myself. A friend of mine did it. And uh, you... I think even we've probably talked about this. You know I'm not a huge fan of Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, mostly because I'm looking at it from... I don't like the attitude that went into adapting it. But also, I didn't want to go into that video saying like, oh, here's the book's better. (laughs) You should read the book. The movie sucks. So I I sort of went into the idea that um, it was more about empowering writers and the idea that writers are not really recognized as much in the film community as I think they should be because... When you think about it, writers are really the ones that create something out of nothing, and a filmmaker usually brings that to life, adds their own layer to it, and the best of both worlds scenario, I think, for me in that sense is like writer-directors, or um, where it's a really good partnership, like um, say anything with James Cameron does where he doesn't write the script, or someone like an Edgar Wright who writes all of his scripts, Uh, that's kind of the stuff I go more for, but and I think video essays should be the same thing. It should be about your voice don't worry about your opinion not being clickbaity enough or anything like that just focus on making your goal for doing video essays for me shouldn't be about getting subscribers or becoming one of the big ones or doing videos every week about every movie released in theaters because you want to get your opinion out there as fast as possible to click on all the links i've seen some really poor videos come from that Mm -hmm. and specifically because they've only got a limited amount of footage to use or anything like that and meme video essays are usually the ones i really dislike where it's just them beating a dead horse over and over again yeah the the ones i do love um like you you mentioned Lindsay ellis um it's almost not video essays she does she does almost like short documentaries yeah like with the amount of information that goes into it and not not to get braggy here, but uh, one of my mates in the video essay community, Houston Productions, I did a video with him a while back in summer. He he did a Harry Potter retrospective Great. that was basically like a documentary. It was like 50 minutes, wasn't and it, it was incredible. Yeah, something like it that. So and it was all about his perspective and why he loved Harry Potter and what he saw the story as. And I try to do that as well. I'm thinking, if I'm writing a video essay script, why am I writing it? What are people going to take away from this? And how can I use this to make the film community better? Yeah. Like that, that's sort of my perspective on to when I do it. And I have been on a bit of a hiatus from video essays because I took time out to rewrite my book and I was kind of getting burnt out with how the film community was at that time. Uh, but I am coming back with the, um, the How to Train Your Dragon video essay now and that one, I mean, if you thought my Donnie Darko video was long, I think this one's going to end up being twice as long. <laughs> oh my goodness, wow. So yeah. I'm not looking forward to editing that, but I'm excited to share my perspective because I think video essays should not be just, let's repeat the same opinion for 
this amount of views. Yeah. Bring your perspective, make your voice the star of it. And before you do a video essay, seriously think about the effect that it would have on the film community if it's going to make it worse because you want to tell somebody how much you hate venom or justice league or some shit yeah then don't don't is that really going to add anything that, that that's how i see the whole thing yeah and th- and that's the most important part honestly i uh, i mean it's just like why why do you have to go out of your way to just exclaim your hatred for something and not do it in a constructive way and you know, I, I try, I try and you know, tread water carefully when I'm critiquing other video essayists because I'm not the best at it, and I still you know do it, and I and I still work within the confines of what I have, and you know, I still think that video essayists still get unfairly con- critiqued by comparison to people who just write essays. Because for me, outside of the obvious difference that a video essayist is a visual form of storytelling. If someone writes an essay on like Alita Battle Angel per se, like that article about, you know, how it could be about, you know, being a trans person and not feeling right in your own body and finding your right body or whatever. What's the difference between that essay and a video essay? And why do you feel that video essays sometimes get more critique? There was a great comment in uh, my post yesterday about it from Ty that said something along the lines of it's a visual medium. So it opens up critiquing more. But is there anything else you want to offer new to that? Why do you feel video essays sometimes get a bad rap? Uh, I feel most of them get a bad rap mostly because sometimes it can feel like they're just pushing their opinion without really backing it up or with anything or doing any research and it can come off as kind of bias. I've seen even some video essays that I like or video essays that I like veer into that and it's clear they're doing it just for the views and it kind of annoys me because like not because I'm disappointed in them or anything, but I feel like they can be better than that, and they know they can, but they, they're they just kind of taking the easy way out. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a video essayist that I really love, who's... I'm not sure if she's related to Lindsay Ellis, but uh, it's Rowan Ellis, who's... I mean, if you like Lindsay Ellis's videos, you I think you would like her, but she focuses more on, say, the LGBTQ community in film and examples of that. And I've learned a lot from watching her stuff and it's kind of a similar retrospective thing. The only video essayists who I think would get kind of a bad rep are the ones who are just like aggressively angry and most times kind of unfunny. The ones who completely roast filmmakers and don't realize the repercussions of that and like, there was something, um, I think, a while ago that happened. Um, someone was commenting about a video essayist who had just, like, full-on roasted a filmmaker and kind of to an obnoxious degree. And they said, like, you know, it's kind of ironic that you want to be a filmmaker as well because if a studio got wind of this, they would not want to work with you. And yeah. that's very true. Like, because I'll be honest with you, dude, uh, video essays are not really, like, how I want to peak in my creative life like my goal is to be a writer it's to be an author but i like taking how i understand storytelling and seeing how you can learn from that whether that be a moral lesson or a writing lesson or something like that lessons from the screenplay i think is the best example of it because if you think if you watch any of his videos he never really offers his own opinion he really just talks about the craft and how you can learn this and using movies that you like to sort of teach that and the ones that are bad are the ones who feel like they have to tear everyone down to be noticed. That To me, I said this on your post as well, they're like the equivalent of high school bullies who just sort of beat down on everyone but don't have any concernable qualities themselves. And specifically, there's one who I won't mention his name, but was using his own student film as a comparison to tear down like professional directors and also wants to be a filmmaker himself. Like, dude, you just pretty much shot yourself in the foot there. Like, don't yeah. don't do that stuff. So that's where I think video essayists can get a bad rep. It's when they're acting like they're the authority on what you can like or not. I try to stay away from that. Like, yeah, I know I know how many people love The Shining. So I didn't want to make a video where I was just roasting The Shining because writing such negative videos like that and doing because they take a long time to do it would just be so emotionally draining for me. Yeah. And like, do I really want to spend so much of my time? tearing down another creator when i want to be a writer myself like (laughs) (laughs) it's just kind of dumb and i don't see the point of it so i i thought 
okay, even if I don't like this version of The Shining, how can I sort of still teach and still give it a positive message after that? And I, I think I did a pretty decent job. Yeah, it was good. Given the contents. Yeah, and considering I absolutely love that film, it's one of my favorite films ever, you know, it still gave me a, a new sense of perspective. And I think that video essays for me have really sort of helped me evolve as a storyteller because... You know who Dan Purcell is, right? I'm pretty sure that we've... Uh, yeah. yeah. So he and Patrick Willems are actually quite close. Like, he created uh, their new intro music to their podcast. Um, they engage a lot on Twitter. And both of them sort of came to an agreement that the word content creator should be eliminated from our vernacular when talking about what we're creating. We're storytellers. And you might be a different level of storyteller because you're, one, you've written a book. And I haven't quite done that, but I feel like video essays have allowed me to sort of flesh out my perspective more, figure out my style more, because again, what we're doing is we're telling a story from beginning, middle to end about something, our own perspective on something. We're just like filmmakers. That's what we're doing. And I think that when, you know, you see a lot of these video essays come out and say, F Zack Snyder, F the Wachowskis, F, you oh, know. I am so sick of hearing Zack Snyder <laughs> clickbait on the video. Yeah, it's like, world. I understand if you're critiquing and you want to be constructive and you want to build something around that filmmaker to talk about how maybe they could do something better in a constructive way, that's fine. But if it's bashing after bashing after bashing, like I understand when you create something, you have your own sort of style and you appeal to your own market. And there's a select group of video essayists out there who I feel like say the market indicates what we create. And I don't think that's entirely true because then you've got an essayist like Patrick Willems. He was doing a Q&A for Christmas that he does every year. He's my favorite YouTuber by far, by the way. Oh, he's definitely one of my top Yeah, he's YouTubers. one. He, again, he's informative. And at the same time, he is he's entirely subjective and he's smart and he's funny. Um, and he said that. Because someone had asked, you know, what what if I want to make video essays? What, you know, what should I try and focus on? He said, make videos you would watch. And that sort of, you know, struck me. Like, I could easily go out and make a video on The Last Jedi again, even though I already did it. I can easily go out and make a video on why I think Civil War is a tonal mess or something. I can easily go out and talk about why Batman v Superman is the greatest thing of all time. I could easily do that just to get clicks and appeal to the market. But... I went out of my way and made a 21-minute or 23-minute epic about Christopher Nolan and the race against time, even though he doesn't even have a movie coming out for the, another year. And I said, I want to tell this story. And again, that's going to blend more into the themes of this quote-unquote trilogy that I'm making. So it's just... Which, by the way, I think is your best video essay. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. I've been... I think I could have done a couple things a little better there. But I just think that why do you have to appeal to these people? Why can't you just make something you want to make? And I think Darren Aronofsky had a great quote when uh, he was on the director's roundtable for THR. He said, he said, people start losing their voice when they just start making the movies they don't want to see. They make it for what others want to see. And I feel like some video essays have trended towards that. And I think that's really unfortunate because we're all storytellers. We're all trying to tell our story in our own unique, creative way. Like one thing I love that Patrick Willem does, and I keep using him as an example because he's the best, but he tells a story by using flourishes of a filmmaker. Like his Michael Bay video has Michael Bay tropes in him. His video essay about movies within movies has video essay within a video essay. It's like, it doesn't sound entirely creative, but the way he frames it is creative. His music biopic one also does a similar thing. I haven't thing. seen and, it yet. Uh, but uh, oh man, I, the, I um I was one of those people who was like not really bothered by Bohemian Rhapsody and he just sort of took that to a new level and made me think about this thing in a whole new different way and he did it also without being a complete douche about it cuz one of the reasons I focus more on a positive approach to my own content is because Dude, I just spent two years writing a book, and it was one of the most emotionally heavy, hard, uh, but ultimately rewarding experiences of my life. So from that, I can't see a universe where I trash another creator or another writer or another filmmaker or something like that, because I know how hard it is just to write something. Just writing something and bringing that to filmmaking, that's a whole other level. Mm. And that's not to say that they're immune to criticism but there's a way to go about criticism that doesn't make you sound like a condescending twat yeah, yeah. you know and i think that because as a wannabe film critic you know there's a sort of 
aura that oh you're just sort of you know you don't love films you, you want to be mad about them you want to critique them stuff like that and i feel like these video essays have humbled me have really humbled me as a critic and given me a new perspective on storytellers. You know, before the show, it took me half an hour to even get this thing started today because my laptop is a complete piece of crap. Like, and you know, that's painful and editing's pain, f- painful. Losing a file, not getting the right audio, having to re-record something over and over and over again. Yes, it might not be the lengths to making like a Peter Jackson epic, but at the same time, in my own little confined space, telling the story at this level is still kind of a challenge, but there's still a deep sense of reward to finalizing something. When I finished my Nolan video, I cried, not only in the sense that I basically improved almost that entire ending of the Dunkirk sequence because it really sort of helped give me sort of a cathartic release to an event that happened last year in April, and I feel like... I didn't even realize that until I finished making it, that I was making this to help me with something else. And I think that it's just amazing what video essays can accomplish in the sense that you're just tapping into another level of the medium that you already love so much by using it to tell your own story from your perspective. And it's such a great tool, and I wish people would stop abusing it. Yeah, the same. And I haven't got to that level of emotional reaction to one of my videos yet because... I'm mostly talking about what you learn from it, but I can relate to that sort of finishing something and crying. That happened to me when I finished my rewrite of Moonflower because it wasn't just like, oh, I've written the story of this little kid. It I've been writing this for two years and it felt like I had been on a journey with this character for yeah. two years and I was helping her through something because you mentioned that uh, you can only offer a certain perspective because you're a straight white dude. I'm a queer guy and I don't see a lot of... Uh, stories that kind of reflect that experience the way that i would write it and when i took this like somewhat unique idea i had and i was like this is one for my fellow lgbtq people that i love so much that kind of just sort of pushed me to tears and i was just so happy that i had managed to create something like that to the point where if someone did point out problems with it yeah i'd probably listen to them and like take them on but it wouldn't so much bother me because it feels like it's such a part of me that it's someone made a great comparison to it a while ago. It was like when someone critiques my scripts, it's just like, well, I spent a lot of time on that script and it's like my baby. That's kind of like if you were a parent and someone was critiquing your kid, like at the end of the day, sure. Critique your kid, but like still my kid, I still love my kid. So that's not going to change anything. Yeah, exactly. And you know, one, one last thing, before uh, we head out of here is that you know i think it's cool for people to you know want to make video essays about the same thing over and over and you know you might kind of lose your voice after a while because you're just repeating similar thoughts or something you touched on in another video but as a as a video essayist where i've you know kind of spent my time still trying to figure out my style and i've created one two three I think five, five video essays, six on the way, you know, I can talk about something like Blade Runner 2049 and how that movie focuses on hands and the way to accentuate how we feel as, you know, humans and replicants and showing that it's not that different or whatever. But at the same time, I can talk about something a little more technical, like uh, the importance of a great villain in Black Panther. And I think that, you know, there is no objective way to gauge how good a movie is you know in our own little heads it might seem objective because we know our rules we know our expectations we know you know limitations that a movie might have and what appeals to us and what doesn't but there's no objective way to perceive a movie so when you come out and automatically say something is bad just give us a little more give us a little more give us a little something more constructive and you know just sort of you know, use stories as lessons. What's the lesson we can learn from uh, The Shining? A lesson we can learn from Donnie Darko? A lesson we can learn from How to Train Your Dragon? You know, what can we take away from Black Panther that hasn't been said a million times over? You know, stuff like that. So, anything else you want to add before we head out of here? Um, well, on that Donnie Darko one, that was kind of made as a response to the nerd writer, and I don't even think he's seen it, but it was weird, because one day I sort of just, it was after Jake Gyllenhaal got cast as Mysterio, I was kind of on a Jake Gyllenhaal just marathon and i was like holy shit donnie darko is essentially like a really dark artsy john hughes movie yeah and i'm like i want to make a video about that right now and uh it was that kind of passion that sort of drives me to create videos even though like you know you'll hear people go on about how hard it is and how long it takes but it's like it's like the old saying goes if you do a job you love then you'll never work a day in your life mm-hmm. 
And um, it was the same kind of thing with uh, Edward Scissorhands for me. Like, I know you've only seen that as a kid, Mm -hmm. but if I told you that that's kind of like a gothic spin on a John Hughes movie, like, would that intrigue you to give it a second watch? Of course. Well, there you go. Like, new perspectives can change your mind on certain things. Like, I've had my own perspective changed on movies I I disliked before and kind of brought up to liking them, like... Like at at a time in my life in twenty fourteen, I was that was my most cynical time because that was before I started writing, mm-hmm. and I was really not in the mood for the Lego Movie around <laughs> that time. But then someone made a video about it explaining what it was trying to say, and it completely changed my voice. So also, if you're going to be a video essayist, don't be surprised if sometimes your voices change and be open to change. Like. Yeah. The worst video essayists for me are the ones that stick in the exact same mindset for every video, and it's sort of like they're copy-pasting their points all the time. And what where I think that the medium can evolve to, because um, Loki, something something happened recently. Uh, there's this thing called 8 Hours that was just uh, launched, and it's like a video essay uh, sharing form. These guys view video essays as sort of like, film studies lessons that you can essentially find online mm-hmm. and they they asked me if i would help with them That's with cool. launching it and they're looking specifically to bring up smaller creators uh, not so much like the huge ones but uh i mean i would recommend you get in touch with them oh, because I, I think you've got a you've got a really unique voice that uh, maybe it just needs a little bit of molding just to yeah. figure out what exactly it is i mean i was like that when i was starting out as well like if you look at my first couple of videos they're edited pretty poorly. Um, a lot of my points are not as developed as they could be, yeah. but I still loved doing them, and I'm always willing to learn more. So that's kind of what I see every Stories as Lessons episode as. Like, I'm always thinking, how is this going to impact another person before I do yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. You know, my main goal is to say, what's that? What's what's something we can take away from a movie that, you know, has this human connection, like this human level of connection, this sort of bond that we have with the screen and stuff like that. I don't want to give away too much because I have a really good idea planned for my next video essay and how I'm going to round that out. Uh, but this, I'm really focused on sort of how can we take our real world expectations of a perspective like star Wars and how does that apply to the last Jedi? And I think I did a pretty decent job at that. So I'm still working on stuff. Um, but you know, again, one more thing, you mentioned um, a consistency thing. There was something I saw recently where someone, uh, Roger Ebert, reviewed a movie, a remake of something, and he was more kind to it than the first one. And Ebert said, I'm not concerned with being consistent. I'm concerned in evolving, and I want to make sure that I evolve as a critic, and I'm not just consistent in saying, oh, I hated this thing in 1970. I'm going to hate it in 2010. So, yeah, great discussion, man. That was fantastic i'm so glad i had you on uh to talk about video essays because you know your shit and you are a great video essay so hopefully uh, you inspire a lot of people like me uh in the long run um so outro time uh what are you working on anything anything you're creating anything you got on the horizon that you can key us in on or clue us in on well um more video essays are coming i'm working on that how to train your dragon one hopefully it's going to be out by next week somehow there's There's a little visual thing I'm trying there that's similar to what Patrick H. Willems does, but I'm not going to address it in the video. I'm going to see if people pick up on it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've also got one planned um, on Spider-Man because my Spider-Man related essays are usually quite popular and I love talking about that character, but more specifically on how he made me a storyteller. Interesting. Um, And um, on that note, um, I am working on a new book right now that's not Moonflower because... I've tried so many times to try write a sequel to Moonflower and it just doesn't have that same spark but I came up with something that I thought was pretty intriguing and it's my first try into like a young adult fiction and something that you might not know about me from how I talk online and stuff I'm I'm like a really anxious person like I'm really shy and awkward in real life uh, almost to a crazy level to the point where I can get like uncontrollable twitches and I wanted to, and I've always wanted to write a superhero story. So I thought, why don't I combine a superhero narrative and a coming of age narrative with the focus on overcoming anxiety? So it's like this kid who kind of runs away from a failed experiment thing, and his powers are sort of manifesting as little twitches. And 
whilst it could be looked as his superpowers coming up it's also a metaphor for anxiety so that's really cool that's kind of in the that's in the development stage now i also have a really cool idea for a villain for that specifically targeted toward social media i wanted to take like what if you had a a youtuber style villain like a logan paul-esque kind of guy and you kind of explored that angle as opposed to just doing like a super villain or something like that and weirdly enough i realized how similar that was to another story that i love which is oliver twist and i ended up calling this book's working title oliver twitch Mm, cool so wow that's really creative that hopefully something comes of that and good luck i really i'm honestly getting so nervous checking my email every 10 minutes hoping that this agent is going to come and give me a chance on moonflower if that does happen I'll be the happiest guy yeah. on fucking yeah. earth, man. I hope I hope it happens, man. I I know that you created a good one. I really want to read it. Um, how long is it? It, it can't be that long. It's... it's a middle grade book, so it's not that long. It's um, last I checked, it was around twenty four chapters. Oh each, wow, that's ranking about say eight to ten pages each. That's good. Yeah, that sounds. Yeah, man, I really want to check that out. Um, you know, maybe rekindle some of my love for reading that's sort of been lost over the years. But, um, myself, um. Tax returns are coming in here in the States, so um, I'm going to use some of that to hopefully get a new microphone for uh, better quality recording for video essays. You know, I love making my video essays, like I've mentioned, but uh, I just wish my quality was just a little bit better on the auditory side, Uh, so I should have a new microphone uh, by this time next week, as long as that check comes in. Um, And I'm also working on uh, my next video essay. I've been uh, high-tailing it this week. I should have gotten it done... uh, this month, because it would have been great uh, uh, in just in time for Valentine's Day, but that is going to be Damien Chazelle, Love and Sacrifice. want to thank Mike Calkins for helping me with that title. I had a bunch of other like sprawling titles, and he helped me concise it down into those three words. Um, so thank you, Mike. Uh, shout out. Um, and then... That sounds really cool. Yeah, it's it, it should be fun. Um, I don't think... It's going to be a lot harder than... Uh, my bookends to this quote-unquote trilogy because it again middle chapters are very challenging and sort of that transitional part and you don't want to repeat something you mentioned in the first part and you also don't want to say stuff that's going to just basically make the third part um moot so um hopefully i do something kind of creative again i am touching on the subject of love um which is not easy so hopefully i can bring some interesting conversation to that that could stir up some debate because it is an interesting perspective i learned in psychology class um when i actually did attend school a couple years ago um other than that uh website's been going strong um i don't know if i'm reviewing anything this week my barry linden article should be out by the end of this week and then i'll be re-reviewing or retro viewing uh spider-man 2002 um in anticipation for spider-man far from home um as a monthly series as well so that's it for this week's episode of the podcast anywhere they can find you on social media uh you can find me on twitter at nolan dean 27 yeah you can find me on youtube at nolan dean uh you can't find my facebook name because i have a secret identity <laughs> but you can also find me if you're in scotland you can find me on grinder and ton tinder as well if you're into that kind of stuff all right sweet Yep, you know where to find me, Showtime with Roman Podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, and Anchor. You can find Roman's movie reviews on Facebook, uh, and then my website, RBC Movies, A-R-B-I-S-I Movies dot Wix site, W-I-X site dot com slash Showtime Roman. Um, uploading there every week, trying to stay consistent. I have some pretty cool news regarding a second interview that I just got recently, so, ho- so hopefully something comes of that. Um, and then uh, I got some other big news this weekend that I literally cannot talk about, and I and only a few others know about it. I'm very, very, very excited slash nervous this is the sh- you've joined the cast of Jude. That would be amazing. Definitely not. I would ruin the movie because I'm a terrible actor. But I love Denis Villeneuve, so I'd love to get to meet him. So um, this is it for this week's episode of the Showtime with Roman podcast. Thank you, Nolan, for being on. I'll see you guys in the future. Thanks for having me. See ya. All right. Stop.